0: Sixteen years ago, uh, on the 25th of October 1985, this uh, obituary was recorded in the Times newspaper. It was the obituary on Raymond Johnston. Uh, it read as follows. Mr. Raymond Johnston, the director of Care Trust, formerly the Nationwide Festival of Light, died after a short illness on October the 17th. He was 58. Following the formation of the Nationwide Festival of Light, he became its first director in 1974. The NFOL was essentially a Christian grassroots movement of protest against certain changes in sexual and social morality that began in the 1960s. As director, he gave intellectual and political weight to a movement that had quiet but considerable influence. Much of his time was spent in research, writing, briefings, and coordination of campaigns. His submissions and responses to Home Office or DHSS committees inquiring into matters of moral and ethical concern were always models of careful argument and clarity. In the last year of his life, he had been campaigning for the protection of the human embryo in the light of the Warnock Report. As a strong evangelical Anglican, he was convinced that a strong family structure was essential for a healthy society. His 1978 London lectures in contemporary Christianity, Who Needs the Family, spelt this out and show how all his thinking was deeply rooted in a biblical Christian faith. Raymond Johnston was born on April the 4th, 1927, after Solihull School, The Queen's College, Oxford, where he read modern languages and studying theology at the London Bible College, he taught modern languages in schools in Kent and Sheffield. From 1964 to 1974, he was a lecturer in the Department of Education at the University of Newcastle upon Tyne. While at Newcastle, he began his involvement in the central affairs of the Church of England. The church warden of Jesmond Parish Church, he was elected from the Diocese of Newcastle to the Church Assembly, now the General Synod, from 1965 to 1970. After leaving Newcastle in 1974 to become director of the Nationwide Festival of Light, he returned to the House of Laity of the General Synod as a member for Oxford from 1980 to 1985. His speeches in Synod debates were always respected for their honesty and candidness. He is survived by his wife, Peggy, and their two daughters. Well, I actually wrote that uh, obituary, having known Raymond personally since 1972. That was when I was interviewed for the post of Vicar of Jesmond. At the time, uh, he was uh, one of the two church wardens of JPC, Jesmond Prize Church. Uh, Humanly speaking, he was one of the reasons why I'm here tonight uh, in Newcastle and giving this lecture. This evening, I simply want to say, by way of introduction, something briefly about Raymond the man. Uh, then I want to spend most of my time on Raymond's beliefs and concerns. Uh, at the memorial service for Raymond Johnston, at uh, Jesmond, by the way, knew him and referred to him by his initials, O.R.J., uh, at his memorial service, Jim Packer, Dr. J.I. Packer, who was a lifelong, or more precisely, since student days, friend uh, Described Raymond Johnston as one of God's Barnabases. Uh, Dr. Packer was referring to Acts eleven, twenty three, twenty-four, and Barnabas' visit to Antioch, where we read, He Barnabas was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And Raymond was constantly encouraging people to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. But uh, Raymond was not stuffy. He had a great sense of humor. Uh, in his book, Caring and Campaigning, he wrote, A Christian who has no sense of humor should pray for one. And uh, those who rejoice in such a gift should pray that the Lord will help them to use it to good advantage. Raymond was a man of wide sympathies and interests. Uh, he was a lover of the arts. Uh, in that respect, he was a genuine Christian humanist in the tradition of C.S. Lewis, who he greatly respected. Uh, he loved music. Uh, he was on the board of the Northern Symphonia and was instrumental in getting, in, 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 to getting Christopher Seaman as uh, the conductor after the departure of Rudolf Schwarz. He loved good painting, good architecture, and good broadcasting. That inevitably made him oppose all that was bad and uh, demeaning in the arts. Indeed, he not only campaigned against pornography, He also opposed some of the monstrosities, for example, in this location, tower blocks, that came to desecrate our cities in the 60s and 70s. He helped in my early days at Jesmond with our opposition to the more Philistine aspects of the construction of the central motorway east. And Raymond was concerned for the whole person. Uh, He was not just someone who saw people as spiritual uh, and so merely targets for evangelism. No, he was a great scouter. Uh, yes, he used his scouting as an opportunity for Christian witness and teaching, but not in any exploitative way. And it is probably due to Raymond Johnson that scouts and guides and all the other groups, uniformed groups, have continued to this day as effective groups at JPC. Nor must we forget his loyal support of Newcastle United Football Club. There was Raymond on most Saturday afternoons, if there was a home game, exercising his lungs in support of the tune in the days, of course, of Super Mac. We all know Super Mac. Dear me. Malcolm Macdonald, rather than of Kevin Kieran or of Alan Shearer. My memories of Raymond's exploits as a fan include an occasion in the early 70s when soccer was beginning to turn nasty in terms of terrorist behaviour. I switched on the early evening TV news to get the final score of, I think, Newcastle at home to Nottingham Forest. What should I see but headline news relating to that very match, for there had been a pitch invasion, something quite unknown in those days. Inevitably, there was condemnation of this hooligan behaviour. But who should be filmed in the forefront of the spectators running along the pitch but ORJ? Raymond Johnston, it was hilarious seeing this middle-aged future director of the nationwide festival of light, the champion of discipline in schools, as large as life, running with all the yobs. (laughs) The truth, of course, was, as I found out when I teased him in church the next day, that fighting had broken out in his stand, so people like himself, sitting or standing near the front, were forced onto the pitch by the physical force of the crowd, pressure from behind uh, in the same way as he theologised and fairly his love of humour, he sociologised equally fairly uh, his loyalty to Newcastle United. I quote: uh, "It is worth that this is what he wrote in one of his works. It is worth remarking how the need for local allegiances, which is denied by the dreary monochrome of so much of our standardised existence in modern bureaucratic industrial society, is today expressed in the colourful world of sport and particularly of supporters' clubs." To be a football fan, for example, may in one sense be part of discovering one's local identity. We all need to know where we belong in space and time. So that's a justification for Saturday afternoon football watching. So much for Raymond the man. I now want to turn to his beliefs and concerns. And I want to draw attention to three aspects of these that I believe are still vital for today. So I have three headings. First, Raymond Johnston was rooted in the Bible and the 16th century reformers. Secondly, Raymond Johnson focused on cultural disintegration. And thirdly, Raymond Johnson called for Christian thinking and action. First, Raymond Johnson was rooted in the Bible and the 16th century reformers. Raymond Johnson came to faith through the ministry of Dick True and the other leaders at the Solihull Crusader class. It was there that he received his basic Christian nurture, That gave Raymond his understanding of the supreme authority of the Bible. Raymond was indeed a biblical Christian. He wanted to know what Jesus and the apostles taught, not what the latest speculations of some eccentric religious guru might be. But Raymond did not just accept the authority of the Bible and leave open how it should be interpreted. No, he believed in the perspicuity of Scripture. You don't need the church or independent human reason to unlock the Bible. Yes, they can help, but the basic content of the Bible is clear enough. That was a fundamental tenet of the Reformation, and Raymond followed that Reformed teaching. Here is how Martin Luther expresses it. Quotes, I certainly grant that many passages, says Luther, in the Scripture are obscure and hard to elucidate, but that is due not to the exalted nature of their subject, but to our own linguistic and grammatical ignorance. And it does not in any way prevent our knowing all the contents of Scripture. And Luther goes on, The perspicuity of Scripture is twofold. The first is external and relates to the ministry of the Word. The second is the knowledge of the heart. If you speak of internal perspicuity, the truth is that nobody who has not the Spirit of God sees a jot of what is in the Scriptures all men have their hearts darkened, so that even when they can discuss and quote all that is in Scripture, they do not understand or really know any of it. The Spirit is needed for the understanding of all Scripture and every part of Scripture. If, on the other hand, you speak of external perspicuity, the position is that nothing whatsoever is left obscure or ambiguous, for all that is in the Scripture is through the word brought forth into the clearest light and proclaimed to the whole world." Now, uh, I have given you that quotation because it comes from the first book that Raymond Johnston was responsible for, a translation of Luther's The Bondage of the Will, which he jointly translated with Jim Packer uh, and uh, for which, together with Jim Packer, he wrote the very helpful introduction. This claim that The Bondage of the Will is the greatest piece of writing that came from Luther's pen. Uh, the book makes Raymond's own theology so clear uh, as it makes so clear what was at the heart of the Reformation. Namely, the sovereignty and grace of God on the one hand and the sinfulness of men and women on the other hand. That sinfulness had so bound the human will that human beings were helpless to do anything to save themselves. Unless God stepped in to empower them, they were without hope. But the gospel is that God has stepped in, in Christ on the cross and through the Holy Spirit, who opens blind eyes and generates faith. This this issue of the bondage of the will, Luther claimed, was the hinge on which all turns. But how did this reformed thinking come out in Raymond's own basic theology? Uh, he gives us a good example, a good summary of the issues, not long before he died, uh, in his little book, Nationhood Towards a Christian Perspective. I quote, Every Protestant confession asserts the sovereign control of God in providence over every event in time, in accordance with the teaching of the Old Testament prophets, of our Lord himself, for example, Matthew ten, twenty-nine, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And of the New Testament epistles, for example, Ephesians 1.11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. The Christian is meant to live with confidence in the hand of God, who sustains and governs all things rather than as a prey to the message of meaninglessness so prevalent today or to any version of the juggernaut evolutionary theory god sustains and rules sustaining is more than maintaining it is rather an active grip which holds everything together colossians 1:17 he jesus christ is before all things and in him all things hold together an energizing upholding hebrews 1:3 the son of is the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representa- representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, without which all things would disintegrate into unimagined chaos and darkness. It is God's active rule or government. Nations exist uh, by and under his providential sustaining power, but they also emerge, develop, and fall according to his sovereign purpose. Neither in the case of individuals, nor in the case of nations, does providence rule out responsibility. Men and communities are held accountable for their rebellion against the law, written in their own hearts, idolatry, violence, and other forms of wickedness. Yes, evil is woven into the divine plan and can mysteriously be turned to good, as supremely in the death of Jesus, boldly announced by the apostles as bringing both deadly guilt and glorious salvation. Acts 2.23, 3.15, and 4.28. Raymond Johnson believed that the 16th century reformers needed to be rediscovered. After all, they themselves were only rediscovering apostolic Christianity. And Raymond Johnson not only believed, he acted. Jim Packer tells us how. Uh, quotes, Raymond went to the IVF General Conference at Swanwick when he and Raymond uh, were students together at Oxford in the late 40s and came back raving about the speaker he heard there, named Lloyd-Jones. Also, he discovered for himself the writings of Bishop J.C. Ryle, and through Ryle, the 17th century Puritan writers. Then he, this is Packer speaking, then he introduced me to them. That's something for which I can never thank him enough. Incidentally, it was Raymond who first thought of holding an annual Puritan Studies conference in London, and who in 1949 took me to meet Dr. Lloyd-Jones, whom I didn't know at that time, so that we might enlist his help. That too seems to me in retrospect to have been a momentous action on Raymond's part. Now it was because Raymond was a Reformation man that he saw no dichotomy between his Christian faith and social concern. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God means that God is concerned for the whole of life not just life on Sundays in church but Monday to Saturday out in the world as well he believed that God was creator as well as redeemer and he believed this created world could be neglected even though our attitude towards it must always be in the light of heaven and eternity he believed that God had created man in his own image and that although that image was distorted by sin it hadn't been destroyed he therefore believed in the sanctity of human life Believing also that, quotes the archetypal transgression was murder, as evidence in the sin of Cain, he naturally campaigned against attacks on human life. And the great attack since 1967 he saw coming through abortion, that huge blot on the moral landscape. Let me give you Raymond's reasoning on this subject in some detail, as uh, it is still uh, something to be fought and campaigned against. I quote, The question that is raised is, is it or is it not murder? It is true that the Bible never mentions deliberate-induced abortion, so there is no explicit ruling on the matter. Nevertheless, by the end of the first century, one of the Christian ethical distinctives was already that Christians did not practice abortion. The Didache, an early manual of moral teaching and guide to conduct, was probably written before some of the latest epistles in the New Testament. It is against abortion. A prohibition against abortion was among the canons of the Council of Elvira, AD 306. By the end of the second century, the influence of Christianity had brought Roman law to forbid abortion, long before the conversion of Constantine and the Christianizing of the Roman Empire. Long before that, under the Emperor Severus, Roman law forbade abortion. This was the influence of Christianity over 150 years. And the medical profession has never wavered over the last 2,000 years until our own lifetime. In Britain, for centuries, a pregnant woman, convinced of a capital offence, could not be hanged because she was bearing another life. The key, key question then is this. Is the unborn child, for me as a Christian, and equally as a member of the human race, entitled to my brotherly, neighbourly protection? Is it entitled to the same protection I would seek to give to a person I saw being attacked in the street? Is the unborn child my neighbour, or not? Raymond Johnson offers five considerations to help us answer that question. First, ignorance points only one way. If our answer is, I do not know, or if I hold that there must be a point between conception and childbirth, when the child becomes worthy of my protection, but that I do not know when that point is, in either of these cases of ignorance, it must follow that we have to protect the child from the moment of conception onwards. Because you could not accept ignorance as a morally valid defense In any comparable case, consider the case of a man lying in the street, having been run over or knocked down. You would not say, I wonder if he is dead or not. I do not know. So I'll leave him. I won't try to save his life. I won't even call the ambulance. On the contrary, you would say that because you did not know, you would go straight to that man's aid and help him as much as you could. Similarly, I begin my protection of that child from the moment of conception, simply because I do not know, and because otherwise I could be making a terrible mistake. Secondly, human life is genetically complete at conception. Admittedly, at the beginning you do not look much like a human being, though we now know that after a few weeks in the womb you do In any case, the fact that a person does not look like a human being is not an argument for not protecting him or her. If you are a doctor called to a major disaster, you do not discuss whether somebody looks enough like a human being before being treated. You just give the treatment. Thirdly, no criterion of full humanity will justify induced abortion. There is no point at which you can say that you are fully human. Fourthly, human life is a continuum in which birth is only one event what is natural birth today could have been induced childbirth yesterday indeed the baby born by natural birth today natural birth today could have been delivered by cesarean section a month ago fifthly the teaching of scripture when we look to the bible for guidance on this subject we find that the biblical writers are conscious of god's hand upon them long before birth think of the birth stories that go back long before conception how many individuals such as Samuel, Samson, Jacob and Esau and Jeremiah were either called by God or were spoken of in advance long before the moment of their natural birth? This does not make the case unanswerable, but it is an important factor. But what does, in my opinion, conclusively resolve the issue is the use of the Greek word brephos in Luke one forty one. It means the child. The child leapt in her womb. It is the same word as is used for a child after birth. And more than leaping in her womb, the child apparently was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth spoke of the pregnant Mary as the mother of my Lord. This brings us, therefore, to the Christian affirmation of the Incarnation, which leaves us no room for escape at all. If you are an orthodox, well-taught Christian who is asked, when did God become man?, You will respond with the Apostles' Creed, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. That is when he became man, at conception. But if that is true, then manhood, or human existence, begins at conception. And if the proper man, that is Jesus, began his earthly existence as a human being at conception, then so do all human beings. It is inescapable so Raymond's desperate concern over abortion was ultimately from his understanding that God has created men and women in his own image but Raymond's reformed instincts also meant that he was not only concerned with the individual he was also concerned with those social groups that God has ordained either at creation or as part of his providential ordering of the world in particular the state and the family with married parents. And Raymond's reformed instincts meant that he was concerned for the preaching and teaching of the law as well as the gospel. He knew that without the law there was no gospel. If people did not know they were guilty before God, why would they want a savior? Except as an add-on to make life more comfortable. He believed that the reformers had got it right, When they spoke about the law's threefold function. Quotes. Firstly it restrained sin. And preserved order. Secondly it brought home to a man. That he was personally responsible for his conduct. And above all to God. And thus created conviction of sin. And thirdly. It guided the Christian. In his or her conduct. And the law was supremely summed up in the Ten Commandments. Quotes. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, represents the permanent and universal decrees of the sovereign creator for mankind. And Raymond knew that God had written the law in two places. Not only on tablets of stone, but also, as Paul says in Romans, in the human heart. And God's moral law, it's not an, quotes, alien intrusion, but there is a fundamental correspondence between God's moral law and our Human being, to quote John Stott. In simpler terms, God's law is the maker's instructions. So when we obey it, we are working with the grain of the created order. Because that is so, there is a general awareness of a basic moral law or natural law. Therefore, in moral campaigns, you can have alliances with people who may not as yet be believers, but who are aware of God's moral law given by God's common grace, not his saving grace, and given through general revelation, not special revelation, that is the Bible. So, Raymond Johnston was rooted in the Bible and the 16th century reformers. Secondly, Raymond Johnston focused on cultural disintegration. In his thinking on the wider issues of the state and society, Raymond was absolutely convinced that what you believe does have social consequences. Quotes. A moral vision is needed to inspire people to give them coherence and identity and purpose. Some, in particular, many of the Eastern religions, cherish the distant possibility of merging with the infinite. In the West, we have looked for centuries at the picture of a man dying on a cross, giving himself for his fellow men. These visions which shape moral beliefs, are very different in different societies. But because they determine what we think about the purpose of life, they have tremendous inspirational power. And of relevance for this time particularly, autumn 2001, Raymond has some observations on Islam. Uh, In his book, Who Needs the Family, he's writing about fatherhood. Uh, He then says this, There is a religious skew latent in Judaism itself and fully developed in Islam. This is the blazing, oppressive, dynamic, ultra-masculine character of Allah, the one true God to the Muslim. Springing from a near-eastern and Jewish environment but rejecting the deity of Christ and the Trinitarian nature of God, the prophet proclaimed a God characterized by a crushing sense of otherness. In contemplating this God, we are overwhelmed by a consciousness of undifferentiated power which swallows up the truly personal, relational aspect known to Christians when they speak of God as Father. The spread of this unitarian ethical monotheism is an impressive cultural achievement. But the 99 attributes and names of Allah do not include love. And the impenetrable unity of the nature of the divine being demands only submission a fatalistic acceptance of all events as man bows before the incomprehensible. This dominant theocratic creed can be seen as hyper-masculinity projected into the image of God, a new idolatry once more. And it is not surprising, therefore, to find that in countries where Islam's teaching has deeply influenced the laws and conventions, the status of woman is very low. Professor Anderson, indeed, has spoken of the degradation of Muslim womanhood, nor are we surprised to discover in Islam's teaching the doctrine of the Jihad or Holy War, another manifestation of religiously sanctioned ultra-aggressiveness. Raymond Johnson was fully aware that the Christian needed not just to be concerned with politics uh, when he or she fo- focused on the wider world. He knew that the public square was bigger than the parliament square. He saw the vital need to come to terms with the whole issue of culture. But what is culture? He offered this as a definition. Culture is a persisting pattern of thinking, feeling, believing, and evaluating, socially acquired by learning, as distinct from biologically inherited, through which the cumulative heritage and value systems of a society are transmitted, and by virtue of which both individual meanings and social institutions cohere and continue. Obviously then, a culture can be according to God's word, against God's word, neutral or mixed. And obviously, cultures can be in various states of moral health. Raymond's contention was that we in the West are now living in a collapsing culture. He argued that there has been the decline of shared moral and spiritual convictions. So he asked the question, what is our Christian duty in this situation? Now Raymond was very aware of the dangers of the so-called social gospel. Quotes, at the very deepest level, Christian testimony in any age is always the same. Take 1 John 1. Christian testimony asserts the facts that God is light and that no man can say he is not a sinner. That the eternal word of life was with the Father from all eternity, yet has become incarnate. That through the blood of Jesus Christ, men and women can now be cleansed from sin, since God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that when he forgives us, we begin to enjoy fellowship with him, with his son and with each other. And we experience great joy. These things are part of the unalterable good news. And we find them all in that one seminal chapter. But he went on to make the following points. Yet, if this is all we see in Holy Scripture and in church history, we fall somewhat short of the whole counsel of God. The Bible has a lot to teach about social and cultural life, he would claim. And faithfulness to the Bible in these matters does change societies and cultures. it is not simply that there are converts and heaven rejoices with the church as she grows. When the gospel prospers, something else is given to a nation besides individual believers. The whole quality of social life is changed as more and more people apply the word of God to their own life in the community. In that disrespect, many of us are glad to point out to our doubting friends that 17th century England was in many ways a better society after the reformers and the Puritans. 18th century England, a healthier place thanks to Whitfield and Wesley. 19th century England, ennobled by the work of Spurgeon and others. But his desperate concern was over what he saw as cultural collapse. And the culture he saw collapsing was our own Western culture with its threefold roots in, quotes, first, the questioning of the Greeks, secondly, the organisation and sense of law of the Romans, and thirdly, and most important, the Judeo-Christian religious and moral contribution. This last influence has been the deepest formative principle in the development of Western European culture. It was this that brought us the dignity of woman, the sacredness of the family, the intellectual base for the rise of modern science, our hospitals, our schools, our university, and if we are to believe even some of the non Christian economists, our great economic takeoff after the Reformation. And what is the primary cause of this collapse? Raymond was clear in his own mind. The most radical thought dates back a century. It is the lack of the fire and the vision of the gospel. Christianity in Britain has experienced a disastrous decline in the preaching and teaching of the word of God. The church is weak, and the prevalent religious liberalism prevents her from preaching and expounding God's law. Without the law, there is no understanding of the urgency and the glory of the New Testament gospel. Nor is this claim that our culture is collapsing just some subjective judgment on the part of super-sensitive people. Quotes, the disintegration can be evaluated by the Christian in a number of ways. Take Leviticus 18, which is part of the Mosaic legislation. It is a frightening study to go through that chapter and ask, how is this word of God judging our culture today? Those things prohibited to the Israelites as abominations, things which were not even to be named or considered among them, are all back with us. The chapter goes on to mention homosexuality, behavior which is now openly propagated in magazines and approved or at least tolerated by an increasing group of men in a number of churches. Leviticus goes on to forbid sexual intercourse between humans and animals, things which can now be seen on the cinema screen in New York and Denmark, and can be found in magazines available in this country. These are the enormities that are with us, every one of them forbidden in that one chapter. They pollute the whole community and the very region where they are prevalent. The land is defiled, verse 25. Any man of God with his Bible open will view with the utmost seriousness the 18th and 19th chapters of Genesis, which record the destruction of Sodom. He will also note that the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans condemns the sin as sodomy in a particular terrifying way. We are not speaking here of tendencies or temptations. What scripture condemns is the deliberate satisfaction of homosexual desire in forbidden behaviour, sodomy. Homosexual indulgence is something which God condemns as the ultimate sign of decadence and degradation in any culture. So how are we to respond? Thirdly, Raymond Johnson called for thinking and action. Raymond Johnson went back to the sack of Rome as having something to teach us today. I've always been very moved by these words, he says, which I read in a church history book. On the 24th of August, in the year of the city, 1164... And in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, 410, the Goths, under Alaric, entered and sacked Rome. Quotes, this is Jerome. My voice sticks in my throat, says Jerome, and sobs choke me as I dictate. Jerome, the early church father. The city which took the whole world captive is itself taken. Jerome uttered the sensations of all, both Christian and heathen. There has been no such shock to Europe since. Well, that's a quotation, says Raymond Johnson, from Charles Williams in The Descent of the Dove. We do well to remember that the last sentence was written in 1939 before we opened the doors to Belsen, Dachau and Buchenwald. The sack of Rome sent a tremor throughout Christianity. Jerome's words show a Christian feeling deeply the collapse of a culture. So the first response of a Christian is to show compassion at such a time. As a culture collapses, people get hurt, says Johnson. If my love for my neighbour means anything to me at all, the fact that my neighbour and my neighbour's children are now open to subtle forms of media-controlled, psychologically-dominated poison must surely make me feel sorrow and compassion for
1: them.
0: Nor was Raymond Johnston concerned just to quote texts and be prophetic. He was also concerned to argue and use anthropology and sociology to confirm God's truth. Take, for example, the issues of sex and marriage. Raymond was concerned to make public the findings of what had happened in the 1920s in Soviet Russia when the Leninists attempted to abolish family ties completely. And when I quote... Marriage became civil registration only, and that in a most undignified and hole in the corner way. Divorce became possible by simple declaration. Incest, bigamy, and adultery ceased to be criminal offences. Abortion on request was made possible without the necessity even to declare a reason. And a little later, the labor laws made it obligatory for people to accept any post imposed on them, wherever that job might be. No modification was conceded even in the case of a husband posted away from his wife or a wife sent to employment away from her husband. As a result of these policies, family ties were weaker by 1930. But other effects were also noted. By 1935, it was clear that the nation had been enfeebled and that it could not call upon such strong and widespread popular allegiance in the case of a possible war the specific results of the anti-family policy were serious. Free divorce and abortion had pushed down the birth rate. In 1934, in the hospitals of Moscow, there were 53,000 births and 154,000 abortions. Juvenile delinquency, violence in schools, vandalism, sadistic behavior by quite young children, all these things had spread. So, from 1935 onwards the process was put in reverse. Marriage became desirable and children were taught from their earliest years that it was a serious matter, a commitment to life. One article records an interesting sign. In 1936, wedding rings reappeared in the shops of Moscow. He also wanted to make public the findings of the anthropologist J.D. Unwin. Unwin wrote a massive book in 1934, entitled Sex and Culture. Unwin, Raymond tells us, describes his investigation as follows. When I started these researches, I sought to establish nothing uh, and had no idea of what the result would be. With carefree open-mindedness, I decided to test, by a reference to human records, a somewhat startling conjecture that had been made by the analytical psychologists. This suggestion was that if the social regulations forbid direct satisfaction of the sexual impulses, the emotional conflict is expressed in another way. And that what we call, "civilisation" civilization, has always been built up by compulsory sacrifices in the gratification of innate desires. Unwin selected only societies for which sufficient evidence could be found. A, of sexual regulation and B, of what he calls cultural energy. This latter he defined as a process perceived as tending towards questioning, exploring and conquering. His studies covered 80 primitive societies and 16 civilized societies and his two general conclusions were as follows. One... The cultural condition of any society in any geographical environment is conditioned by its past and present methods of regulating the relations between the sexes. Two, no society can display productive social energy unless a new generation inherits a social system under which sexual opportunity is reduced to a minimum. The Western norm received, says Raymond Johnson, startling support from this research. The greatest energy, Unwin comments, has been displayed only by those societies which have reduced their sexual opportunity to a minimum by the adoption of absolute monogamy. Unwin concluded that the evidence pointed towards a choice. Either cultural energy and achievement, or sexual license. It is impossible for any society to enjoy both for more than one generation. Aldous Huxley examined Unwin's evidence in his book *Ends and Means* in 1965, as did Dave, Dr. David Mace, and both found his evidence compelling. The way in which Unwin's work has been almost completely ignored by both scholars and popular writers sometimes seems positively sinister. So concludes Raymond Johnston. Now in responding to the problems relating to cultural and social life, he knew that he had to fight not only opponents in the world, but also opponents in the church who were wrongly pietistic. But Raymond Johnson was adamant. Jesus prayed not that his disciples would be taken out of the world, but that they would be protected from the evil one. John 17, verse 15. So we must avoid what he called Christian insulation. The desire to be a hermit, he writes, or to enter the monastery is not one which belongs solely to the Roman tradition. Indeed, Raymond's biblical heroes were Joseph and Daniel, men who remained faithful while at the heart of public life. We need, therefore, to revive the concept of Christian citizenship, which he claimed has almost died over the last hundred years. Quotes, it was there in Victorian England, particularly towards the beginning of the century. Yet, in the second half of the 19th century, it gradually died. It must be revived, here as an urgent teaching ministry for today, if ever there was one. We can approach this on the lowest level possible, first, that of sheer opportunity. We live in a democracy which means that every man's and woman's voice counts. We have a vote locally and a vote nationally. We can write letters which have a chance of being printed. We can make ourselves heard in all sorts of ways. Are we not under a clear obligation to participate and to use our voice for the standards which we know God has revealed? His argument was simple. If God is concerned with guiding nations, so must we be. If God has made us stewards of the created order, we must exercise that stewardship. If God has revealed to his people the truth about social righteousness, they must pass that revelation on. If they are to be the salt and light of the world, so be it. And he wrote this. We are commanded by the Apostle Paul, as we heard in our reading tonight, to pray for good government. 1 Timothy 1, 2 and 4 to 4. How could we conceive that God would ask all his people to pray for something and then respond by saying that, of course, the answer can only come through the ungodly? No, Christian people are to think and then be active. First, they are to use the word of God to identify evil. Secondly, they are to try to understand the times and channels by which evil is spread. So we ask ourselves, how is Satan active? How is he getting his grip, uh, this grip on our culture, splintering, fragmenting and poisoning it? The press, books and magazines... Films and theatre, radio and TV, the media are paramount. Then at a deeper level, we need to study the attacks upon institutions, the family, school and the legal system. All these have been deeply penetrated by satanic forces in the last two or three decades. Thirdly, we are never to reject alliances. Where there are the Christians, even where there are non-Christians, who on a specific issue will denounce a manifest evil and determine to fight it, There we have a platform on which others may make common cause with us. As unashamed Christians, we make no apology for our reasons in what we're doing. We tell the others, any audience we address or any group we organize, that we are in this fight because we are the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that the law of God, our loving Father, forbids these things. We know that they will only bring cruelty, suffering and chaos. We make no bones about our allegiance for we are men under authority. Yet at the same time, we can say to others, if you will join with us to fight this, we welcome you. Fourthly, as we have seen, they are to get to grips with the intellectual debate. Fifthly, they are to realise that there is this spiritual battle going on. So, there must be prayer. And sixthly, they are to strengthen the things that remain. It is possible that our culture may collapse, as did the culture of Rome. We know that the church of Jesus Christ will still persist because we have his promise that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, Matthew 16:18. But meanwhile, it is our responsibility to arrest the decay wherever we can, to fight the pollution that is at present being publicly disseminated into the families of our land and particularly to our children. Not everyone can do everything, and some people can do nothing but pray, which may well turn out to be the most important ministry of all. But many, many more could be doing far more than they are doing. The root cause of the moral decline and cultural disintegration of Britain is undoubtedly to be found in the failure of the professing churches to testify to the goodness and severity of God. the awesome creator whose holiness convicts us but whose grace provides a wonderful pardon and restoration at the cost of the blood of the divine son. Failure to preach and to live by this gospel deprives the society of the preservative salt which the church is commanded to become. Yet, there is a mute rebuke to many of those who have remained faithful to the apostolic faith of the New Testament. It lies in our Lord's best-known parable. The Orthodox were so concerned with their religious tasks that they passed by on the other side. While the heretic was the man who saw the wounded traveller and had compassion, went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his beasts and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Two things angered Raymond Johnson. First, the false teaching of heretics. And secondly, the passivity of the faithful. So following Raymond Johnson, in God's strength, let us seek to be faithful and then to be active and not passive.
2: We'll have a very brief break of no more than two minutes to allow you to stretch your legs or stretch your minds. Resume our seats and now is the opportunity to... uh, uh, You don't have to ask a question. You can make a comment or say whatever you want to say. We're going to maintain the discipline of last week, which is this, that if you want to ask a question or make a comment... You must raise your hand, uh, and then when your hand is raised, and I indicate to Mr. Dobson here will have a microphone, which he will bring round, uh, don't feel a sense of shock if it doesn't boom. It just speak naturally and normally into the microphone, but please don't touch it, because it is live. So just keep your hands off it, and speak into it just in a normal way, please. And the reason we're doing this is for the first time, I think, uh, and we're well, first with everything, that we're going to record clearly both the question, the comment, and the answer. So I hope you will be disciplined people, as all Christians must be. So, would anyone like to raise their hand and say anything that they'd like to say? And don't be shy about that. It's always the first who's uh, Or I'd call on someone if, if they don't raise their hand. Lady over here.
1: Okay, okay good evening. Um, I wasn't quite clear on the relationship between culture and religion in regards to what uh, Mr Johnson was writing about.
2: That's the relationship between religion and culture.
0: Yeah. David, would you like to say a little bit more about that? Y- yes. Um, I mean, in very simple terms, I think Raymond would, would argue that uh, the way we live together, the values a society has, um, uh, he had that uh, definition, um, is influenced by what you believe. Um, he, I cited an example which came from his book uh, on Who Needs the Family?, uh, where he was referring to fatherhood, and um, he was arguing that the way women were treated, for example, in Muslim countries, was directly related to what people believed, uh, and that was influenced for Muslims by the Quran, the teaching of the Quran. And he would say the reason why women are respected in a different way in our culture, which has been influenced. Uh, In the past, at any rate, by Christian belief, has come about because of those Christian beliefs, which you get from the Bible. And uh, the fact that Jesus um, clearly treated women uh, as uh, equals in the sense of equal in the sight of God. And he spoke to the woman at the well uh, of Samaria. Uh, And those things actually affect what goes on in society um, I think that's what Raymond would argue.
1: That would depend on his definition of culture.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, if I can, f- I find. Let me give you the definition again. If I can, culture, he says. This was the definition he was, is a persisting pattern of thinking, feeling, believing, and evaluating. Socially acquired by learning as distinct from biologically inherited. I think that's the crunch, that a culture is not just an instinctive thing. Otherwise, we'd all be the same all over the world by virtue of being human beings. But it's because it's socially acquired by learning. And what is taught affects a culture. And that's why education... Raymond, uh, as um, uh, John mentioned, and and, uh, uh, the victory which I wrote said, was an educationist, uh, first and foremost. He taught in schools... And uh, he then lectured in the Department of Education at Newcastle University. And um, that's why he was so concerned with schools, because he saw that what was being taught to the children by one generation ended up with behaviours in another generation. So, you know, if you have a generation which happened in the 60s, when he was very much involved in these things, where children were not uh, basically, quote, disciplined, there was a, a, a greater... Uh, well there was a saying that um, or or a belief that children should just express themselves that was the primary value I mean and indeed it seems self-evident without restraints then at home from uh, cultural restraints those children then develop habits um, which end up he would argue in increased violence in society so in that sense what was believed about children not necessarily just a religious belief but belief about what was good for children What's the good life? How you should teach them actually affected the culture.
2: There's a gentleman in the back row there. I think you probably recognize him.
3: First time I've heard you call me that, John. (laughs) Is that on the the record? (laughs) (laughs) It's the last point that uh, David made that I wanted to pick up on, and that is the passivity. Of of the faithful Did Raymond Johnson give any As it were explanation of that Why he thought that was the case Because it's certainly much argued today That the faithful are passive They're keen Christian people No doubt in this room here And yet so often Many of us And I would include myself That when we're pressed hard Especially to debate and discuss with non-Christians who seem to have all the facts of the particular issue which concerns them at their fingertips, we will tend to back off. Uh, so if that is still the case today, uh, why and what should we do about it? How can we help people to, to overcome this uh, difficulty they have in, in standing up for the faith and, and arguing against the world?
0: Yes, he did, um, he did have reasons for that. And in fact, he wrote a little book called Care and Count caring and campaigning and he did have a chapter on um, the theological questions and he did argue that one of the reasons was again what people believed that there was uh, a belief that the world was a dangerous place and there was that teaching that we had to keep ourselves unspotted from the world as James says he then went on to point it but true religion is not only that but you have to visit the fatherless uh, and the widowed in their afflictions um, now, he did argue that there was a strain of teaching which comes from Scripture, because there clearly are dimensions in Scripture which we have to balance and weigh with other Scriptures, which uh, tells us that the world is a dangerous place. And sadly, um, it is a, the case that we have seen many people, uh, as I mentioned, the social gospel, many people get involved in the wider world, and before long they become native. And they just take on the values of the wider world. And sadly, I've seen that personally uh, in the church where people have got into the structures of the church and they've got positions. I'm referring now to the established church, the Church of England. And they are evangelicals to start off with, but they think, well, I must keep quiet until I get to a greater positions of power. Or they're doctors. And they junior doctors and think, well, I better not rock the boat over this moral ethical issue. Wait till I become a consultant and then wait till get a married award or what have you. Then I'll do it. By which time they've retired. And they've said nothing. Um, so there is, there is this, this sense of going native. But, no, he was actually quite concerned that there are some people who justify doing nothing by some scriptural verses, which worried him. So I think what we've got to do is we do have to, and I want to do some work on this personally because... Um, I'm you know we're all we don't we can't blame other people because we're all bad you know we're all in it together aren't we 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 all share the same faults. But I do think we've got to recover the notion of the law and I think there's been a lot That that's that threefold dimension of the law which the reformers were so clear on that we backpedal the law we must preach the law and the gospel of course not just the law but the law, as, as let me remind you, that threefold distinction. The law does three things. The reformers said, and this was in a range of the confessions. Um, Calvin is quite clear. I mean, I came across it late in life, reading Calvin. I'd never heard this before, but you know, I was never taught this. As a, you know, it was in you know in old age, so to speak, that you discover these things. But um, the law does three things. One, it does restrain the evils in society, and it's necessary for that reason. Two, the law uh, shows us our need, and because we fail to keep it, of actually salvation. Uh, it's the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. But thirdly, the law is, a in, uh, is guidance for the Christian, the believer, to know what God's will is. And we do need the law, and we do need to preach the law. We, we must be gospel Christians, sure, but we must, in the first, we must be clear about the law. And I do think that if Christians understood that, uh, it would help. So there's a whole lot of theological kind of education that we all need to do on ourselves. And once we've done that, I think um, we need... I think it's... I mean, I've been very fortunate... Um, I mean, I've kept, you know, having people like Raymond Johnson around and John Byrne. It keeps you sound, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you're a bit frightened. to yeah. <laughs> Frightened what you say, you know. And, uh, but, I mean, people like Raymond Johnson, who uh, was an interesting man. I mean, the more you, you know people, and, and when you see people doing things, it's much easier for you to do it. Do you know what I mean? That it's examples. What we need are examples. And, and what we need all over the place is just into, not, not people who are daft, we don't. We're not talking about people abnormal. We're just people being true to themselves and normal. I mean, I didn't hear this, but um, uh, someone—what uh, well, John? No, I don't know. No, it was uh, two of my colleagues at the church heard it. On um, was it Thursday of last week? I, and I'm just telling you what I remember what they said. It was regard to clarity of expression, and I mean, we we need to be challenged by the Muslims in the same way as we need to be challenged by the Mormons in the way they evangelize. But the Muslims, I think it was the president, some of you would have heard it on the Today program, the president of, or was he, prime minister of Malaysia, was quizzed by the interviewer as to why, I forget the man's name, His number two, the deputy, had been demoted or, or he's mm. been sidelined, hasn't he? And um, uh, he said to him, why have you done that? And he said, because he's a homosexual, and actively so, or with that effect. And this totally dumbfounded the presenter. And he said, oh, isn't it because, you know, he's undermining your power base? He says, no, the Quran says that's immoral and we don't have active homosexuals. Full stop. And this was sort of, you know, a deaf in silence, wasn't it, that, it was. that followed. And, I mean, it's quite interesting. You, you, if you hear that, it then encourages other people to say, it's perfectly legitimate to say, moral matters are important politically. And if we heard a bit more of that then it would encourage people, no, we don't want, as, as Raymond was saying, and as we all say, we all sin, and uh, all, all, all sorts of sins. Heterosexual sins are just as bad in the sight of God. Greed's bad. But what is going on now is a glorification of sin. You know, if you've got a bishop saying, I think greed is wonderful, I hope we would all be, um, you know, up in arms. But why, you know, should that be so different from a bishop saying, I think homosexuality is wonderful.
2: Give them time. Yes,
0: I know. (laughs) (laughs) However, I I think examples, uh, teaching first is what we need to recover a sort of theology of these things. And secondly, we want examples. And as people stand up for the truth in sensible, sane ways, that encourages other people to do the same. Thank you. I'm trying to be
2: fair. I I can see people urging.
4: um...
2: (coughs) Okay, uh, that's fine. Frank, were you? Mr. Nags at the back there, I think.
4: David left out a significant um, part of, on the introduction about his um, involvement with Raymond Johnson on General Synod. David himself was on General Synod standing committee and earnestly contending for the faith there. i will try to make it into a question, does the minister agree that? But uh, a little bit more biography. In 1985 is when David, uh, when, uh, David was re-standing for General Synod, uh, Raymond Johnson also uh, was putting himself up for election again for General Synod and as you said um, uh, he died very quickly but during the summer he was part of a major um, thrust to get more lay people elected to General Synod a practical campaign was being waged and there were three lay people and that's about the number of conservative evangelicals that you could muster on General Synod at that time, there was Raymond Johnson, Hugh Craig, and V.J. Menon. And they had the vision of increasing it substantially. And that particular year, it uh, multiplied uh, tenfold. Thirty uh, conservative evangelicals got elected, and um, uh, subsequently more still in 1990, 1995. I don't think we've gone native, but I'd like you to sort of say at what point... After earnestly contending for the faith, for against homosexuality, against bishops of Durham that don't believe in the bodily resurrection, at what point do we jump and say, "Come out from amongst them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing"? Where would David? It, where, where would Raymond have uh, jumped?
0: Uh, I, I mean, I I'd, well, I'll just give you my answer rather than Raymond's because I don't know what, but I hope he would have said that. Um, Uh, My position is that uh, if um, you are still able to preach the gospel, um, you actually take very firm action, very uncompromising action, such that the gospel is clear and the ethics are clear and the morals are clear. But um, institutionally, you don't jump. You wait till you're pushed. Um, I see no reason uh, and this is a, a, a kind of uh, an intra-church uh, issue, it's like with establishment, um, I mean if the country wants there to be a, a privilege uh, the privileging of Christianity it's not for me to say we don't want it to be privileged praise God if people say we would like prayers in parliament um, uh, now uh I think m- m- much of it depends on other people. Uh, and I have to say, my own view is that a number of people who do jump ship, um, jumps ship before they've made, sometimes I feel, uh, an inadequate m- amount of noise. Because if you make it quite clear, and it's publicly clear, that you think certain things are totally wrong... Then the public, which is what your main concern is, who don 't are not believers, have no confusion about the matter. They know where you stand, like dare I say it, the Church of England I mean most people know that uh, our church, um, certainly myself uh, and the, the the staff you know think homosexual sex is a wrong thing. The mere fact that others in the Church of England um, may disagree there 's no confusion we think that is quite off off limits. Now, as long as that's the case, there's an, I have no problem. But if we hadn't made a big fuss, then in one sense, you know, you would feel contaminated. So uh, I think, I, and I have to say, knowing Raymond, I mean, he was quite a fighter. I mean, I think Raymond would have probably taken that line. I think he would. I hope he would. Have.
2: There's a question over here from a gentleman you probably recognise.
3: This is another slightly difficult one for you to answer, probably. What do you think Raymond Johnson would have thought about the state of Christian campaigning um, now? Do you think he would have thought that we've, as a nation, the Christian church has actually come some way forward?
0: Or do you think he would be dismayed at the lack of a clear Christian voice? I have to say, um, I think things have, um, all in all, gone forward, without doubt. Um, I mean, I think... and. Uh, I'd like to uh, you know, uh, commend uh, and congratulate Colin for that because in one sense he sort of set, does set new standards in these things. Um, and that's good. Uh, the fact is we, 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 need, we need to be um, not pessimistic but realistic. We need to be sufficiently thankful to God for what has been achieved. And uh, I think that um, in one sense... Uh, Much is happening today that certainly wasn't happening in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. So um, I think Raymond would be very encouraged. However, having said that, although there's a lot of good things happening, and dare I say it, uh, and I think the Christian Institute needs to thank God for what he's allowed it to achieve, nevertheless... The forces on the other stand have seemed to have gone on even farther and faster because globally, um, the the witness, the positive witness of people like Raymond um, uh, has been relatively minimal compared with the forces of, apparent forces of what is evil. But I think um, we ought to take uh, heart from what is good and and then you you think of the mustard seed and the, you know, how things grow. So I think we don't want to be wrongly depressed. We want to be realistic uh, and optimistic rather than pessimistic. I always say, you know, there's a a danger of being, and many Christians, sadly, are optimistic and unrealistic. They say, you know, it's all wonderful and revival is around the corner uh, and there's thousands of people going to alpha courses and you name it, this, that, and the other. Well, that's not quite the world that I see you know, the you know, down the tracks. And I'm not denying that there's all sorts of things. I mean, we have good times in our own congregation and church. But, you know, it's a pinprick, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. to what is going on in the wider world. So we can't be optimistic and unrealistic. But then some Christians are just realistic and pessimistic. And life is terrible. Things are going to get worse. There's no hope. Whereas, um, I mean, God has called us uh, this little constituency. And, you know, for myself, I've you know, have stayed here at Newcastle because I, I feel God has called me to. And I thank God for the bits and pieces that one's involved in where we do see encouragement. So I think we ought to be encouraged by the Christian Institute. We ought to be, I mean, I'm encouraged that we had a good day yesterday at our own church and I was encouraged by that. Um, and I think what we need to do is be faithful to what we've been called to do and get encouragement from it. Yet at the same time, in a totally realistic way, understand how Raym was absolutely right that there is... Cultural collapse going on, and uh, we've, got to, we've got to face that reality. And in one sense, if we are faithful, that's all God calls us to be. I mean, as we well enjoy ourselves when we have good times, and uh, uh, you know, when necessary, watch Newcastle United win against uh, Aston Villa. How about that? Raymond would have done
2: we better not get into that too much. I think there are people from south of the time <laughs> as well. Any any further questions? Um, don't feel inhibited uh, about that, or comments. Is there anyone else? Uh, yes, in a moment. i Just just anxious that I'd like to give everyone a first opportunity. There's a gentleman at the back there.
1: I'm just trying to recon- reconcile uh, something in my mind. Really, it's uh, it's. Uh, how we go about this uh sort of cultural engagement um and uh, so far i sort of got a, got the impression that battle and military Im- imagery is quite quite significant and and i'm just thinking of uh, say uh, paul when he goes to the areopagus in 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 greece and uh he doesn't he doesn't go along to attack uh, he's 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 trying to understand their culture he's he's tried to read their poetry he's picking out sort of obscure poets and stuff and reading it to them. And he's going and he's really giving them something like the Apostles' Creed uh, and not straight away sort of making attack, uh, an attack. So what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to get at is when are we in a battlefield and when are we in a, in a missionary field? Um, like like when, we, when we send missionaries to another culture, we try and understand their culture. We try and get onto them so that we can sort of, so, so that we can sort of reach them and somehow we have a, maybe a problem of trying to accept that our culture is dead. Uh, it's, it's no longer a Christian nation. We're really in a missionary situation. Let, let's try and uh, – well, I'm really saying <laughs> – I'm really wondering where the church gets involved in this because this is really a church situation. You know, is it, is it going to sort of attack or is it going to sort of in – a, in a military way, or is it going to sort of go in and be persuasive uh, uh, with means of grace, I guess? I mean, where do those two things fit in?
0: Yes. I mean, I think there's two two issues there. One is a question of um, analysis and the other question of uh, tactics. I mean, Paul would have argued when he went to Athens that he was in the middle of a spiritual battle, that there were forces of evil all around him, and uh, he knew that he wasn't wrestling against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, and in Athens of all places. Um, and that, I think, is... is uh, so. That, but then the question is, what do you do? Um... Well, uh, you you realise there is an attack, and uh, when you've got a campaign on, like, Clause 28, that is a clear attack. But when you go into a television studio, you don't go in there with the largest Bible you can find and bonk the presenter over the head with it. You are, you know, you argue. uh, This is precisely what we all do. I mean, and some people in this room are very very gifted at it, uh, as good as anybody and, um, you, you, you know, you you, uh, you you actually, which is Raymond's point, you use arguments. That's what I was arguing, that, that it's the battle for the mind that Raymond was concerned with. But you do that knowing that this is warfare. It is straight warfare. There's no two ways about it. And um, uh, now, of course, it, it, and, and this is the great difference between the Christian faith and Islam, that um, we do not believe that, um, you know, you can win by the sword, which is force which is the issue I think you're talking about. I mean, the question is, do we use violence or do we not? And the answer is no, we do not use violence. We use arguments, and, and Paul says, you know, um, uh, we do have to take captive thoughts. So he uses, in one sense, when he's, in 2 Corinthians, when he's using the idea of engaging with the mind, he does use military kind of analogies and metaphors with regard to that spiritual, intellectual, as it were, battle doesn't he, you know, and um, so I think that's the issue, the answer is yes is a warfare, but two uh, we do not use the weapons of this world as he says uh, but we do have to take captive thoughts and um, that's where argument does come into it, oh absolutely, and I think that's, that's the key thing and I think one of the reasons why a lot of Christians do not fight, I mean on abortion for example, is sadly people haven't um, thought things through or haven't been taught properly by, by their teachers, their clergy, their whoever uh, teaches them. Sadly, all they get is some nonsense in some kind of, by some secularistic um, ethics kind of seminar they go to as medical students, and they don't get firm input, and they've been wishy-washy inputs, I'm afraid, by Christians, even evangelical Christians over the years, so they haven't got a clear a clear. Understanding Well, no one's going to put their neck on the block, which might be career prospects on the block, when you're not sure of what you believe. So the battle has to be won in the mind. So, yes, I, I totally agree with you. But I think we need to distinguish between what the way we analyze it, and there's a spiritual warfare, to practically what we do. Of course, we don't bonk people over the head with Bibles and, and sort of punch them. I hope we don't. Um, uh, you feel like it may be sometimes, but when people are so silly, uh, I have to say, I'm glad I'm not... Uh, I was going to say I'm glad I'm not a Muslim because I feel uh, sometimes you feel as though you would, uh, you you hear such stupidities, don't you, in the world today? I mean sheer stupidities and you see poor people, poor kids, you know, suffering through inanities and you need every restraint of God, you know, to stop, stop yourself doing precisely that. But no, we must never do that.